God is great. He is faithful. We can count on him. Praise God. Thank you very much, Lynn and Kathy Cullen and Elaine Edgecombe for leading us in praise this morning. Today we're talking about uh, a model life. It's the last chapter in Thessalonians, and uh, we thank you for hanging in there for the series. Uh, Next week, Pastor Mike gets to start. We're looking forward to hearing him. Uh, Our first section, uh, work, is it? worthwhile or wearisome. What's your attitude toward work? Do you love it or would you rather leave it? Our society has a sort of love-hate relationship with work. It depends a lot who you ask. When the federal government proposed a holiday tomorrow, September 19th, to mark former Queen Elizabeth's funeral, the responses reported on the news were interesting and varied. One man on the street commented much to the effect, well, we can always use more holidays. Well, at first that seems understandable, but what's it imply about our attitude to work? Is it just a job? Just a means to obtain a paycheck so we can afford to buy the stuff and entertainment that really make life worthwhile? On the other hand, the Canadian Federation of Independent Business urged provincial governments not to designate September 19th a statutory holiday. Its vice president commented, There are many ways that you can pay tribute to the legacy of the Queen's life, but at the same time, it's important not to hurt small businesses. To an employer, more holidays could interfere with being profitable. As a pastor, I'm in kind of a unique position. I like the idea of a holiday in general, but I'm already working most Sundays, so the three-day weekend doesn't really apply. Plus, Sunday has this habit of keeping coming around each week, so I often end up working Mondays anyway just to meet deadlines and get the work done that has to be done that week anyway. So. I can understand an employer's frustration as well. We've got to get that work done. There are a couple of idols our society worships that can be a problem in regard to work. One is the addiction of workaholism. The previous generation, the builders or GI generation, were sometimes children of the Depression, so had this innate drive to work as if survival depended on it. They remembered the days before old age security, Canada Pension Plan, universal health care. If you didn't work, you went hungry. They worked long and hard and built much of Canada's economy and institutions we benefit from today. I grew up in Perth County. Any other Perth County natives? Uh, oh, good. I went bold on there. The motto of which said, by work and worth we rise. In other words, to get ahead, you'd better be ready to work hard. In fact, work and worth are implicitly associated there. By work and worth, we rise. Get the message? This could be related to what's known as PBA syndrome. that stands for performance-based approval. When someone affirms your worth because of what you do instead of who you are. Workaholism can be addicting because the rewards may reinforce the behavior. One source says, research indicates that workaholism affects between 27 and 30% of the general population today. 
it may be high, another sort of said around 10% at least. Workaholism or work addiction is actually a serious problem that can lead to career burnout or overworking oneself to serious health issues, even death. Here's a quick quiz that might twig if you happen to be a workaholic. Top 10 traits of workaholics. Do you find yourself here? Prioritizing work before personal life. Worrying about work on a day off. Having difficulty switching off or working on vacations. Hmm. Checking emails during the night. Being the first to arrive at work and the last to leave. Feeling too pressured or busy to take annual leave. Skipping the lunch break at work. Well, so what if I started eating my lunch about 3 o'clock the other day? Feeling anxious if unaware of what's going on at work. You feel out of the loop. Oh, can they manage without me? Being told by friends and family that they work too much. Checking emails first thing in the morning. Hmm. Well, if you felt convicted by that, the prayer team will be up here after the service. I'm happy to meet with you. How are we doing? Anybody out there getting convicted yet? Fundamental to the Judean Christian worldview is the concept of Sabbath. It's solidly there in the first chapters of Genesis. Even God took his seventh day off. It's emphasized in the Ten Commandments. It comes through in the New Testament, especially in the book of Hebrews. Hebrews 4.9 says, There remains then a Sabbath rest for the people of God. To enter God's rest, we rest from our own work as God did from his. Hebrews 4.10, though not in the legalistic sense as the Jews did on Saturday, for us it's the first day of the week that Jesus rose and became special as the Lord's Day. The boomers benefited from their parents' hard work in general. Economists predict a huge transfer in wealth must happen in coming years as boomers leave the workforce and consider preparing the estates for what is inevitable at life's end. Meanwhile, some accuse younger generations of another idol, kind of the opposite end, that of entitlement. Such people seem to have been born with a silver spoon in their mouth or act like they were. They seem to think others have worked so they don't have to. It can express itself in reluctance to take on employment that is difficult or challenging or not exactly up one's alley aligning with one's passions. People can flit from job to job in search of better options, seeming dissatisfied with current offerings. They may be too ready to fall back on employment insurance to let the so-called nanny state take care of them. Let's note it is a real blessing to have welfare programs and universal health care and such safety nets. They're legitimately needed by many people. But they can also be abused if someone is really too fussy or not particularly motivated to work. Not without reason is sloth or laziness reputed to be one of the seven deadly sins in Catholicism. Employees in a Detroit business office found the following important notice on the bulletin board. The management regrets that it has come to their attention that workers dying on the job are failing to fall down. This practice must stop as it becomes impossible to distinguish between death and the natural movement of the staff. 
Any employee found dead in an upright position will be dropped from the payroll. How do we navigate between these two prominent idols, workaholism and the entitlement mentality? These are two powerful forces trying to drag us off the path of peace, damaging individuals, families, and societies. In today's reading, the final chapter of 2 Thessalonians, the Apostle Paul urges believers to live a model life following his example, one in which he worked so as to not be a burden to others, yet drew strength and guidance from the Lord in doing what's right. Our big idea, God's grace provides gumption for an example to emulate. First, grace, the believer's secret charging station. Electric vehicles are becoming all the rage, however, they will require frequent charging in order to become widely accepted. This past Wednesday, U.S. President Biden announced $900 million in infrastructure money to build EV chargers across 53,000 miles of the national highway system in 35 states. He remarked, the great American road trip is going to be fully electrified. Well, followers of Christ may or may not be using superhighways, but we are on a path of obedience, walking with our Savior. That path can be challenging, and we need an internal charging station. A review in the first chapter of 2 Thessalonians, Paul noted the sufferings and persecution the believers there were enduring. In chapter 2, Paul speaks about the rebellion and lawlessness that will be associated with the man of sin or Antichrist and how the secret power of lawlessness is already at work. He warns believers about those who refuse to love the truth and be saved. Instead, they delight in wickedness. We need God's help when we face suffering and persecution. We need God's help when we are tempted to believe Satan's lie and get sucked in by evil. So in chapter 3, Paul points out several ways God strengthens and supports us on our journey through this life. God answers prayer. Paul begins by asking the church to pray that the gospel will spread, literally run, and for their protection. 2 Thessalonians 3.1 Finally, brothers, pray for us that the message of the Lord may spread rapidly and be honored, just as it was with you. And pray that we may be delivered from wicked and evil men, for not everyone has faith. Verse 3 highlights how God is faithful. He can be counted on to keep his promises. But the Lord is faithful, and he will strengthen and protect you from the evil one. If you want a good short verse to tuck in your memory bank, that's a good one. Second Thessalonians 3.3. He is faithful. He can be counted on, relied on, in contrast to the wicked and evil people in verse 2, for not everyone has faith. God's faithfulness stands in stark contrast to human fickleness and deceit. Verse 3 mentions other aspects of God's internal charging station for us. He will strengthen the Greek word here means to make stable, place firmly, set fast or fix, to strengthen, make firm. Wouldn't you like that in your life? Stability, strength, something to hold on to. Life in our postmodern cyber speed age can be so dynamic, evolving, shifting with different philosophies and technologies. In June, a Canadian quantum computing company announced that it will deliver Canada's first quantum computer 
for public research to Calcul Quebec. Uh, what are they going to call this computer, you ask? Monarch. Hmm, nothing intimidating about that. Science and culture may change, but God gives us strength and stability. Hebrews 13.8, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. We were just singing. Verse 3 says, the Lord will protect you from the evil one. Literally, keep or guard. This is particularly relevant since a few verses earlier, back in the previous chapter, Paul was predicting the man of lawlessness, the human representative of Satan, the evil one. Uh, 2.9, the coming of the lawless one will be in accordance with the work of Satan, displayed in all kinds of counterfeit miracles, signs, and wonders. You want to need protection. Skip down to verse 5. Three things are indicated that charge us up here, guiding our hearts, God's love and perseverance. May the Lord direct your hearts into God's love and Christ's perseverance. New Living Translation. May the Lord lead your hearts into full understanding and expression of the love of God and the patient endurance that comes from Christ. Praying for the Lord to direct our hearts. Can we allow him to set our priorities, govern our wants, funnel our passions into pursuits that please him? Psalm 51.10, create in me a pure heart, O God, renew a steadfast spirit within me. Psalm 119.11, I have hidden your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. Give your heart to him to lead. A full understanding and expression of the love of God, the verse says. That can mean either God's love for us or our love for him, but in context with the parallel phrase, it's more likely God's love for us. Can you feel deep in your core that God loves you? That it's not conditional love based on performance, requiring perfect works, but he loves you just for who you are? in his son. Romans 5, 5. And hope does not disappoint us because God has poured out his love into our hearts by the Holy Spirit whom he has given us. Experience and contemplate his love. That will save you from many a misstep. Continuing. And Christ's perseverance or the patient endurance that comes from Christ steadfastness, constancy, uh, the characteristic of a person who has not swerved from their deliberate purpose and their loyalty to faith and piety by even the greatest trials and suffering. Jesus bore up under tremendous pressure and pain, and he helps us do the same. Paul wraps up this chapter with a reminder God supplies his peace and his presence. See verse 16. And may the Lord of peace himself give you peace at all times and in every way. The Lord be with all of you. He himself is the Lord of peace. He gives us his peace. He told his disciples that night in the upper room when within hours he was to be arrested, beaten, whipped, and crucified. John 14, 27, peace I leave with you. My peace I give you. I do not give to you as the world gives. Do not let your hearts be troubled and do not be afraid. Note Paul's adjectives describing the peace Christ gives. 
at all times and in every way. That just about covers all eventualities, doesn't it? Is there something troubling you today? Are you unsettled in your spirit about something? Jesus offers you his peace if you sincerely ask him for it. And his presence through the Holy Spirit. He has promised to be with us. Matthew 28, 20. He said, and surely I'm with you always to the very end of the age. So there are many aspects of God's grace that bolster us. He answers prayer. He's faithful. He strengthens and protects us directs our hearts, allows us to experience his love, reinforces our perseverance, and gives us his peace and his presence. A big idea again. Can you say it with me? God's grace gives gumption for an example to emulate. We talked about the grace, now about the gumption, to loaf or earn our loaf. Christ's grace empowers us. It frees us from performance-based approval, feeling that we have to work indefinitely to try to earn God's favor. Yet, it also stimulates us to not do nothing, but instead share the gifts and goodness with which the Lord has touched our own lives. So we are freed from both workaholism and entitlement or laziness. His grace gives us gumption. The church at Thessalonica saw this modeled for them in the apostles' life. He set an example for them, which they could in turn imitate amongst their neighbors. Verse 7a, For you yourselves know how you ought to follow our example. Also see the end of verse 9. We did this in order to make ourselves a model for you to follow. He was illustrating a pattern for them, what a, a representative Christian life could look like. The particular application here stems from a misunderstanding of theology that occurred when the church was planted. Paul had been with the believers a very short time before persecution sent him packing to other destinations. He had preached about Jesus' return, but some supposed this had somehow already happened, and others took it to mean if Jesus was coming back soon, they should suddenly retire, sell all their possessions, and sit around waiting for the heavenly chariot coming for to take him home. So Paul took pains in his two letters to address this misunderstanding. Yes, Jesus was returning on the clouds and evildoers would be condemned, but in the meantime, Christians were to keep on serving him obediently in their regular livelihoods. He warned them repeatedly against the idol of being idle. In the first letter, fourth chapter, Verse 11, make it your ambition to lead a quiet life, to mind your own business and to work with your hands just as we told you, so that your daily life may win the respect of outsiders and so that you will not be dependent on anybody. Work with your hands. Be productive. Contribute something to uh, something positive to society. Be responsible with your talents to win outsiders' respect to not be dependent, but instead have something to share with those in need. Ephesians 4.28. Again, in 1 Thessalonians 5, he said, And we urge you, brothers, warn those who are idle, encourage the timid, help the weak, be patient with everyone. 
you'd think they would have got the message. But laziness can be hard to lick. So here again in Paul's second letter, he calls them out on the recurring problem, 311. We hear that some among you are idle. They are not busy. They are busy bodies. Such people we command and urge in the Lord Jesus Christ to settle down and earn the bread they eat. They're to quit loafing and start earning a loaf for lunch. Paul underscores this with what may have been a Jewish proverb, verse 10. For even when we were with you, we gave you this rule. If a man will not work, he shall not eat. It may be based back in the creation story in Genesis 3.19, which said, By the sweat of your brow you will eat your food until you return to the ground, since from it you are taken, for dust you are, and to dust you will return. By your sweat you will eat. No sweat, no eat. Hmm. Highly motivational. And Paul wasn't just talking through his hat here. In the time he'd been with them, they had seen his work ethic, as he reminds them in verses 7b and 8. We were not idle when we were with you, nor did we eat anyone's food without paying for it. On the contrary, we worked night and day, laboring and toiling so that we would not be a burden to any of you. No free lunch. Even though as an apostle, Paul had the right to accept meals from those he taught, he had taken pains to not be misunderstood as, as if he were preaching for profit like some false teachers were doing. He's echoing here what he'd already pointed out back in his first letter, 2.9. Surely you remember, brothers, our toil and hardship. We worked night and day in order not to be a burden to anyone while we preached the gospel of God to you. The principle was not to be a burden, but to look after their own physical needs so they could make the gospel available entirely free of charge. Paul did not want to be perceived as a leech or a drain or a burden on anyone. God's grace supplied Paul with gumption to work to provide his own needs. A word that might cover the overall topic here is responsibility. Are you a net plus or minus in society? What are you contributing according to your ability? Robertson comments on verse 11, These theological deadbeats were too pious to work, but perfectly willing to eat at the hands of their neighbors while they piddled and frittered away the time in idleness. Paul saying, By God's grace, you can do better than that. As we look around at our tech-rich, entertainment-soaked society, would any of that apply to us? Frittering the time away in idleness? A lot of time we have a device in our hand as if we were bionically tethered to the media networking entertainment industry. Does the command to work with your hands require us to put down the smartphone or the remote that's in our hands so much of the time? Some of the Thessalonians were not busy, they were busy bodies. Yes, it's a wordplay in the Greek too. So much free time they were meddling in others' affairs. Hmm. By our Facebooking and YouTubing and TikToking, are we somehow meddling in others' business? Complicit in voyeurism, where we really have no right to intrude? Settle down, Paul says. 
Mind your own business. 1 Thessalonians 4.11. Oh, but the Kardashians are so distracting. Substitute your own favorite celebrity. Verse 13 has a good overall principle on which to land this plane. And as for you, brothers, never tire of doing what's right. Do the good, the honorable thing. What model are you making for others to follow? Is your example good? Would it enhance Christ's reputation on the front page of the newspaper? Does it shine a light on his excellence or just add a fleeting moment to your enjoyment? Never get tired of doing good. Akin to Galatians 6.9, let us not become weary in doing good, for at the proper time we will reap a harvest if we do not give up. Harvest time approaches. Remember our big idea. Let's say it again. God's grace provides gumption for an example to emulate. Last section, plodding to prodigious productivity. I was reading this week about the owner of the outdoor clothing company, Patagonia, giving his company away, forming a charitable trust to help the environment, receiving all the net profit for the new, uh, sending all the new net profit into this new, uh, sorry, this Charitable Trust is going to receive all the net profit from the new for-profit company. It's estimated this trust for the environment will receive approximately $100 million each year towards environmental work. The owner, a rock climbing enthusiast, started out back in 1973 making metal spikes for climbers to drive into the rock. Then he branched into durable outdoor clothing. Mr. Schwinar is reported to have a net worth of about $1.2 billion. Now you may say, oh, he can afford to be generous. But if you had built that company from scratch, would you be able to give it away? In his open letter on the company's website, Mr. Schwinar writes, I never wanted to be a businessman. Later he adds, if we could do the right thing while making enough to pay the bills, we could influence customers and other businesses and maybe change the system along the way. Did you notice a little phrase there akin to Paul's? Do the right thing. I don't know this man's religious affiliation, but he is trying to be an example to others by his actions. Christ's grace gives us gumption to serve wherever he leads us, to set an example for others to imitate as we imitate Jesus. The Lord is faithful and calls us to be faithful in doing good to others, not to earn his favor, but in response to his love and favor toward us. An 11th century German king, uh, King Henry III, had grown tired of court life and the pressures of being a monarch. He applied to a monastery to be accepted for a life of contemplation. Hmm, this is interesting. The religious superior of the monastery, Prior Richard, is reported to have said, Your Majesty, do you understand that the pledge here is one of obedience? That will be hard because you have been a king. Henry replied, I understand. The rest of my life I will be obedient to you as Christ needs you. Then I will tell you what to do, said Prior Richard. 
go back to your throne and serve faithfully in the place where God has placed you. When King Henry III died, a statement was written, the king learned to rule by being obedient. Like King Henry, we too often tire of our role and responsibility. And we can come to realize that God has placed each of us in a particular place to be faithful there, be it as a plumber, accountant, mother, father, whatever. God calls us and empowers us to be faithful wherever he has placed us. Let's pray. Thank you, Heavenly Father, for your incredible grace filling our lives, your love warming our hearts, your beautiful gift of talents and abilities distributed to each person. Lord Jesus, help us not tire of doing good, nor to drift into idleness and apathy, but to see the needs around us and respond joyfully as laborers in your vast workshop, being a help to others and not a burden. Strengthen us afresh each day. In Christ's name, amen. Thank you, Pastor Bill. We'll close uh, with a song. Will you stand? Do you join with me together?